Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Well, I am thrilled this morning that we have Hannah Heather speaking to us. You will all, many of you, most of you will know Hannah. Yeah, big cheers going up. Doesn't happen for anybody else. Um, um, Hannah leads the vision course uh, here in Guildford. She, is, uh, she also uh, works with uh, students uh, on, with 24-7 prayer. She's married to Adam. They lead the evening service. She is a phenomenal speaker, no pressure. And I can't wait to hear uh, what she's going to talk about around worship. So, Hannah, over to you. Sorry, Bill, do you mind opening that for me? <laughs> Women in leadership. Not weaker, just different. <laughs> Well, good morning. How are you all doing? I feel like we're the people who aren't on a summer holiday. (laughs) Everyone else is probably somewhere sunny. But um, we are here, which is good. Um, If you've got your Bible, would you turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 16. This morning, we are going to be thinking about worship. Aren't our worship leaders here just amazing? Yeah. They are incredible. And do you know, they come here at 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning to prepare the way for us and, and lead us into worship. And I just think they're amazing. And Adam was chatting with Rich this morning about, you know, the world-famous Emmaus Road croissants. He was like, can you eat a croissant or is that, is that a wee bit flaky when you're singing? <laughs> Rich was like halfway through a croissant. He was like, it is going to be flaky when I'm singing. <laughs> so it's a real worship leader problems. Um, but these guys are just amazing and, and worship is really at the core of who we are at Emmaus and what we do. And so this morning we're going to be thinking about worship that turns the world upside down. And this passage that we're going to read um, is one of my favorite passages, one of these early church moments that kind of reads a bit like a, more like a film script. Um, It's got kind of goodies and baddies and all kinds of drama happening. And we've got um, sort of prison break and, and all sorts. And right at the heart of this drama that we're about to read is worship sung worship, what we just did together. This thing of declaring with our mouths that God is worthy. This word worship comes from an old English word, which literally was meant worth-ship, ascribing worth and value to something or someone. We were created to be worshipers, to be people who sing. So if you have your Bible open, we're going to read Acts 16, and we're going to start at verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. 
At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. It's such an amazing passage, isn't it? I think the danger sometimes that I have when I read this passage, and I don't know about you, but we used to hear this story when I was in Sunday school. And if you had the sort of um, privilege of growing up in a Sunday school, you might remember, you know, like the fuzzy felt boards, you got all the characters, and there was always like Paul and Silas in the jail was always one of the stories that we used to hear. And, um, and we used to have that crazy little fuzzy felt board, and you've got your like Swedish Jesus, and and all the little loaves and fishes. Do you remember? Yes, some people remember those. I'm not sure we still use them, but, but I, when I hear this story, I almost picture that kind of quite safe and sanitized version of this story. You know, Paul and Silas are in this nice little room, and they're sort of singing like kumbaya-style hymns, and then they get set free, and the problem with that is that this was not a sanitized, nice moment. Paul and Silas, the Bible tells us, were stripped naked in the streets and publicly beaten. The scripture actually says they were severely flogged. Now, flogging was the favorite form of torture for the Romans. And if this was considered a severe flogging, then you can just imagine the kind of experience that they'd had. The usual instrument that they used for flogging was a short whip with several single or braided um, leather straps. And then they, they put little small iron balls or small pieces of sheep bones tied into the leather straps so that these would dig into the flesh. And, and this is a lot for this time of day, I'm sorry, but 
This is what they would use when they would, um, when they would beat them. So Paul and Silas, they're publicly stripped of their clothing, tied to a post, and then whipped to these little like sheep bones and bits of metal are digging into their skin. And then when they finish this flogging, then they get put into stocks. Now, the idea of these was that um, they would bind your, your legs, but what they would do is they would spread your legs just wide enough that your legs would start to cramp up, but you couldn't move them to relieve the cramp. So you can just imagine how painful it would be to be stuck in these stocks. And then they're thrown into prison. The Bible specifies that they're put into the inner cell of the prison. I love that Bible irony when the guard has specifically said, guard them carefully. <laughs> you just know something's going to happen, and these guys are not going to stay in there. So they get put in the inner cell. So this would have been the very center room. It would have had no windows, no light at all, no fresh air, and no bathroom. So you can just imagine the smell of that room. And by midnight, Paul and Silas, they, they start to sing. And they're lying with bloody open backs and septic wounds, lying in their own and other people's excrement. And they start to sing. This is not a sanitized story. Why is it important to think about these details? I think it's important because when we truly understand the severity of their circumstances, it exposes us to the radical nature of their worship. What Bill was talking about, you know, regardless of their circumstances, and these are pretty dark circumstances, to be able to sing and give God glory. I find this so beautiful and so challenging at the same time. Their commitment to worship, to telling God that he's worthy. You know, sometimes I think we can make worship something that's more about us almost than about the one who is worthy. You know, sometimes people will say things like, oh, I just wasn't really feeling the worship today. I just wasn't really feeling it. And I sort of want to say, well, okay, but was Jesus still worthy? Because, because that's what we do when we bring our worship to God is we tell the one who is worthy that he is worth it. And so worship that turns the world upside down, I think, is always more concerned with the one we celebrate than the way that we feel. So when Paul and Silas, they begin to worship in the stench of this prison cell, they show us this radical depth of worship, which I think changes our paradigm of what worship really means and sort of highlight what's available for us to step into. We see here that worship does two crucially important things. I think firstly, it brings us freedom and joy in our circumstances. And it brings us freedom and joy from our circumstances. So let's start with the first of those, freedom and joy within the prison. And I think this one's kind of like too easy to just want to rush past and get to the miracle part, you know, the earthquake part and the, the chains coming loose. But before they get amazingly freed from the jail, something so beautiful and amazing is happening. Paul and Silas actually get set free inside the jail before they get set free from the jail. 
It's midnight. Faced with the agony of the stalks and the wounds on their backs and the smell of excrement all around them, in the pitch black, in the middle of that prison, it would have been so easy for them to give in to doubts and fears, wouldn't it? What are we doing here? Have we made a horrible mistake? Did we get it wrong? Did we mishear Jesus and his plans for our life? Did we make a mistake trusting him at all? Have you ever felt that in the midst of trials? Like, what were we thinking? Trusting this man, risking everything for him. In the midst of these circumstances, the temptation just swirling around them, I think, would have been to give up. It's too hard. It's too painful. There's too much opposition. I feel like they should be getting angry with God. They should definitely feel like they've misheard his call on their lives. They've got it wrong. Their circumstances all point to them feeling that way. But they had a source, right? They had a power which allowed them to live above their circumstances. And what was that source? Worship. Can you picture it? Silas kind of begins to croak out the first few lines of a familiar hymn. And Paul kind of quietly joins in. And then slowly their voices begin to rise together and get louder and more triumphant until it echoes all over the prison and every single person in the jail can hear them. The splendor, the majesty, the love of God in a stinking prison cell. They they worship themselves back into hope. They're still in the prison. Their feet are still bound, but their hearts are no longer bound to their circumstances. Their souls are free, if you like, from the prison. Because they've not allowed their situation to enslave them, right? To bitterness, to disillusionment. Their worship brings them this radical freedom in the midst of their circumstances. So when it's midnight in our lives, when it all feels a bit too much, when you know we're facing hardship, maybe financial problems, difficulties at work, or difficulties in our relationship, or walking through real suffering, real pain, we have this choice to live under our circumstances or to tap into that deep source of joy and freedom to be found in worship. See, in the world, we rejoice because we have joy. But in the kingdom, we have joy because we rejoice. So where is it midnight for you right now? Where are there circumstances that you can't change that are just beginning to press in and make life feel difficult? Are, are financial troubles making you feel like a prisoner to money? Or is difficulty at work maybe making you feel just claustrophobic with stress? How might you know freedom today, even in your chains? For Paul and Silas, it starts with a croaky hymn. You know, you are good. Good. I don't think they were singing that actual song. But this declaration, you are good. I want you to picture their voices. Imagine how croaky they probably sounded after the day that they've had. Just getting louder and louder. You are good. Good. 
and I want you to hear me on this because I'm not talking about a sort of nicety or platitudes here or, you know, trying to sort of sing like, oh, happy day with like a fake smile on our faces because I don't think that's what we see in Paul and Silas. It's this gritty, painful, raw, forcing the words out until they start to flow naturally onto our lips. It's this gritty determination to bring worship to God. And I, I don't know, I, someone set me a joy challenge once, which was to sing for 30 minutes a day. Just sing whatever you want to God. And it's such an amazing, amazing thing to do. And if you're feeling a bit in prison right now, why not set yourself a little joy challenge this week? What would it look like to spend 30 minutes every day just singing, worshipping back into hope? Paul and Silas received the revelation that the prison was not bigger than their God. And this Paul who is singing, sitting in his own excrement, is the same Paul who goes on later in life to say, to compare everything in this world to excrement except for Jesus. Philippians 3, 8, right? Paul says, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. And rubbish, as you know, is our, the NIV's very polite way of um, translating the Greek word skibalon. Say it with me, skibalon, yeah. And so skibalon, what that really means is um, well, it means excrement or whatever other word you might choose to use for that. That is how strong that language is, skibble on. It's not, this is not nice language for a Sunday morning. And, and Paul, who's just sitting in all of this, and then he goes on to say, I consider everything. It is skibble on. It is nothing. It's excrement compared to the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And he's a man who knows this, right? Because what do you have in a prison cell? You have nothing but Jesus. And he's considered it all worthless compared to this knowledge of Christ. That is, I think, the radical realignment of perspective which worship can bring. And we see so poignantly here with Paul and Silas that Worship is also this vehicle to, um, to let our circumstances lead us into a deeper encounter with Christ. Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the wave which crashes me against the rock of ages. Isn't that beautiful? Letting our circumstances lead us into deeper encounter with Christ. To learn to kiss the wave which crashes us against the rock of ages. Do you know, it's only on this side of eternity that we get to worship God in the midst of hardship, that we get to choose him against all odds. I want you to just imagine for a moment the way that this moves the heart of God. When you're walking through trials and you choose him and you choose to sing to him and you let your voice rise to heaven, this moves his heart is it all right if I do a little creative embellishment? Will you forgive me and give me a little creative license this morning? Because I like to try and imagine 
what happens in heaven when we worship. I like to try and picture this, and I want you to picture this moment with Paul and Silas, and God, as we know, is in heaven, and all the angels are there, and they are in a constant state of worship, right? The Bible tells us they're constantly singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So he's there. Angels are all singing this beautiful, like the most amazing sound you could ever imagine, right? Thousands of angels singing, holy, holy, holy. And then suddenly in heaven, God sort of says, shh, a moment. Shh, I want to I wanna listen to this. And the angel closest to God, I'm going to say it's probably Gabriel, because we know his name, so he's probably a favorite. So Gabriel's like, what, what are we listening to? And God's like, listen, can you hear that? So Gabriel listens hard, and he hears this croaky little, let's be honest, probably out of tune, probably pitchy song from Silas, and he hears this, and he's like, that? You, you, you want to listen to that? You've got all of these choirs of angels, and I'm sorry, but I'm a little offended that you're choosing that croaky voice. And then Paul begins to join in, and Gabriel's thinking, what is happening? And, and God, just the face of God has just moved. And he says, the thing is, Gabriel, is that they have chosen me against all odds. And that moves my heart. See, the thing is, is that he hears us. I don't know about you, but it can be so easy to come in here and almost switch into autopilot, can't it? And we sing the songs and we know the words and we know the tune. And sometimes I forget that heaven hears us. He's so deeply moved. I almost imagine him listening to Paul and Silas and he's so moved and Gabriel suddenly gets it and all the angels get it and they join in, right? They pick up whatever song Paul and Silas are singing. You are good, good. And they join in and they start singing so loudly that this earthquake happens and the chains fall off. That's embellishment, but I like that idea. He hears us. And you know, if you've come here today and it is midnight in your life and it just feels like you're in this terribly hard situation, the truth for us this morning is that heaven hears us when we choose him, when we choose to bring him worship against all odds, despite our circumstances, it moves his heart. Worship gives us the opportunity to turn our prison into a throne room, a place of encounter. And secondly, the other kind of freedom which worship brings is this freedom from our circumstances. And this is the sort of Hollywood wild part of the story where the worship of Paul and Silas kind of ushers in divine intervention and freedom from heaven. And the Bible tells us the very foundations of the jail shook. It's so funny, isn't it? Like, the enemy thinks, put them in the inner cell. That's guarding them carefully. God's like, you can't keep my kids in jail. The very foundations of the jail shake. And so God invites them to miraculous freedom from their circumstances. Everyone's chains fell off. And you know, sometimes our worship will actually miraculously unlock the situations that we're in. 
there'll be divine intervention. We will be worshiping and something will just shift. Right? You can feel it shifts in the atmosphere. It shifts in the spiritual and then it shifts in the natural and something happens. See, heaven responds to your worship. And what worship does is it kind of creates this landing strip for the sovereignty of God into situations. Adam, my husband, is a real, he's looking at me really worried. He's a real worshiper. He's just, he's just sings the whole time. And the minute we're in the house, he's like playing his guitar and worshiping. And he just has such a heart for worship. And, um, and when he first started working at 24 7, he had to do this crazy commute um, from Cheddar, like Cheddar Gorge, into Guildford every week. So he had about six hours a week in his, in his little black Kia. And Adam, being a worshipper, was actually so excited about this opportunity because he wanted to turn his little black Kia into a throne room, into a place of worship. And suddenly he's got six hours a week of worship time, and this is like his dream. And he's, he really remembers that season as having the most amazing and precious encounters with God. And the first time I ever got in Adam's car, and I'll never forget this, he literally turned to me and said, welcome to the tabernacle. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, this guy is such a weirdo. <laughs> but <laughs> it worked. It did work a few years later. Um, but this guy's such a weirdo. But you know, it was ca- there was something captivating about that. I was like, what? What happens in this car? And you know, the truth is, <laughs> the truth is, if you want to create a landing strip for the miraculous, for God's interventions, for earthquakes in your life that shatter the very foundations of the prison that you're in, you need to spend some time in your own tabernacle wherever that might be for you. Because worship invites miracles and it sets us free from our circumstances. And then finally, as we close, worship creates a joy in us. Not a kind of, I mean, there was definitely joy singing all the, doing those actions. I don't know who choreographed those. They were some sketchy actions. But, but there's this joy that is kind of magnetic and irresistible in us when we worship. Worship creates a joy in us. The Bible says in this passage, all the prisoners were listening. You can imagine, can't you, this prison filled with prisoners, bad guys, right? The people who are going around and causing chaos and robbing and stealing and who knows what else. And right in the middle cell, The most dangerous prisoners are kept, and they start singing, you are good, you are worthy, you are beautiful, God. And of course, all these prisoners are listening, like, what is happening? And then the jailer, like, he's never seen anything like this, right? All of his his career, he's spent dealing with prisoners, so he's seen, you know, swearing, violence, maybe crying in prison cells. He's seen so many things on people's First night in prison, never singing. 
Paul and Silas's reaction to their circumstances was so fundamentally different to any other prisoner ever that it causes the world to sit up and pay attention. Every prisoner is listening. The, the jailer and his whole family come to know Jesus. The guy who probably was the same guy flogging them a few hours earlier started washing their wounds. This worship actually ushers in something redemptive for a whole family. And you know, I'm willing to bet some of those prisoners came to faith as well. If you think about the fact that their jailer is now like a raving evangelist, like what, what was going to happen the next day, you know? Worship and joy like this, they become magnetic because it is the answer that the whole world is searching for. The people who heard them singing knew, they knew what had happened to them and they were singing anyways. You can bet they were listening. See, the world is watching Christians. They're watching us and when they see us shaken by circumstances just as they are, they'll conclude that there's very little to Christianity. But when they find us rising above our circumstances and worshipping God in our prisons, then they begin to realise that we have a kind of freedom to which they're strangers. We have something beautiful, magnetic and attractive. We started today by saying that worship brings these two kinds of freedoms. Freedom in our circumstances and freedom from our circumstances. And the second of these, the Hollywood bit, the miracle bit, is so exciting and amazing. But do you know that first kind of freedom, that worshipping in the prison freedom, I think that's so crucial and imperative and maybe even more profound. Because here's the thing, if they didn't have freedom inside the prison, if they hadn't encountered joy in that moment, they could have been released from jail and that could have been the end of the story for them. The fear, the trauma of that experience, it could have kept them in prison for the rest of their lives in fear or disappointment with God. You know, how could he let us go through that? You know, one minute we're singing, you're never going to let me down and then I'm in a prison. They could have stayed in that state of fear for the rest of their lives. How many of us actually give up on our calling for less, for less traumatic reasons than they experienced? It's too hard. It's too scary. It's too risky. They could never have gone on to fulfill their destinies, right? No more missionary journeys. No more preaching in the streets or healing people. No more letters to churches. No half of the New Testament. After that brutal flogging and night in the stocks, they could have retreated into a prison of comfort and safety, built a safe, sensible life. But they unlocked the power of worship in that prison. And in this way, you know, worship is warfare. It's an act of defiance against an enemy who thinks he's won when you're beaten down who thinks he's won when your legs are bound, who thinks a stinking prison is enough to bind your soul. Worship like this is an active defiance against an enemy who wants to keep you from your destiny. And so Paul and Silas, they're set free from the inside out, and then they go on to change history. And I want to end um, today with these words, which are in the very next chapter of Acts, Acts 17, verse 6. 
someone speaking about um, these Christians and Paul and Silas, and N.T. Wright translates this verse. These are the people who are turning the world upside down. These are the people who are turning the world upside down. Scars on their backs, but songs in their hearts. Worshipping through our hardships will sustain us and release us into our destiny to go out and turn the world upside down. I want us at Emmaus to be the people who turn our prisons into throne rooms, right? Who choose to worship God against all odds because heaven hears us. Why don't we just close our eyes and quiet our hearts for a moment? God, we want to be the people who turn the world upside down. We want to um, encounter you in the place of worship in a way that in a way that sets us free and releases us into our destinies. God, I want to pray for those today who feel like it's midnight in their lives, who feel beaten down in their circumstances. I want to pray, God, that even right now you give them the strength to sing, the strength to praise you. And I thank you that you're the God who hears. You're the God who is so moved by our songs. And it is the joy of our lives, God, to bring you worship because you are the one who is worthy. We love you, Jesus. Amen.